So extra, I love it. So we had about 120 volunteers come out yesterday and put on this amazing event. The older person came out and she was absolutely floored by the efforts that our church was able to put together. Uh, we might have upset a few neighbors because literally uh, before we started, we had cars lining up since 9 a.m. And we went out and told them, hey, we're not opening until noon. They're like, that's fine, I'll wait. And so we had cars lined up till 9 a.m. We had Beaumont uh, double parked, essentially. We wrapped around me down the other block. Literally, they lined up two, three blocks around just to get through for some of these groceries that we have. And, and let me be honest with you. Uh, it, we weren't necessarily giving fresh produce. We weren't giving, like, turkeys and, and things like that. We actually, we tried to look into it. Uh, it's expensive, right? Uh, we, 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 didn't, we didn't give, like, the most gourmet things. But I'll tell you this, and this is, we've done this a few years now, and this is what I've come to believe. It's not so much what we give, but who's giving it. We have to be visible in our community. It is critical for people to know that we are here and that we care and that we want what's best for them, not to take from them. And so uh, we were so blessed. And I'm telling you, if you didn't get a chance to be here yesterday, make sure you jump in on our next serve day because there was something incredibly powerful when the line of cars would come up and they would open up their trunk and you would make eye contact with that individual. Let me tell you the truth. It, often it's a humbling experience to receive help. It's a humbling experience to get something that's, that's free. You, you feel like your charity, you feel like maybe people are pitying you. There's a little bit of pride that wells up. But when you're in a serious need, you, you just don't care after a while, right? You just go for it. And uh, with all these cars lined up, but when you look at that person in the eyes and you see the gratitude on their face, that a stranger was willing to open up their parking lot and give them something. There's almost no other feeling like it. I mean, this is why I believe God loves to utilize his church to do his work. God could easily do it in a bunch of other methods. We've seen scripture like God fed prophets with ravens, right? He just had people show up with food. But God chose the, the foolishness among us to confound the wise. And so I just want to say, before we get into everything else, thank you, thank you, thank you to those who came out on Wednesday and at our powerful time as we packed everything and we prayed for it, for those who came out on Saturday and served so diligently. And here was my favorite part about those who came out on Saturday. Such amazing and wonderful attitudes. I mean, everybody, and I'll be honest with you, not everybody who came had a great attitude. There was a lot of, you know, double parking and traffic and confusion on their part. And so, you know, they came a little aggressive, but our people responded with joy and love and grace. And I am so grateful to be a part of a church like that. Also, special shout out to uh, a team from Trinity University. Pack Your Bags is a program that comes out every year. Where are you at, Trinity? Wave at me. There you go. <laughs> So these young people, they take a gap year essentially and uh, they get to do a lot of missional work. They do stuff in the inner cities. They do stuff in Nepal and uh, where are you going this year? Nepal, Bangladesh, Thailand, India. Nepal, Bangladesh, Thailand, India and the Philippines. Some of you are like, man, I want to join Pack Your Bags. <laughs> Mary Beth is the one you want to talk to if you're interested in something like that. She's also one of our missionaries. She spoke for us uh, last year. And so, again, this is a wonderful partnership we've been doing for the last few years. And I will tell you this. Them Midwest kids, Montana, Dakotas, dude, they know how to work. <laughs> them farm kids know how to work. I know you're not all farm kids, but like, some of you are like, I am. It's like, okay, good. <laughs> they know how to work, baby. <laughs> So I was thinking about all that, and I was just thinking about those situations, and you know, we were just thinking about miracles, and I, I couldn't help but shake this thought of miracles, 
What's a miracle? Well, a miracle is something that cannot come through unless God does something. A miracle is something that is predicated on the Lord acting. And if the Lord doesn't act, it will be impossible to accomplish. And so, you know, oftentimes we have miracles. Most miracles we don't even realize. A lot of people ask that question. Well, why don't we see miracles anymore? Well, let me tell you this. Even your phrasing, that makes sense. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. Okay? God is accomplishing miracles on a regular basis. Now, most of our miracles happen so often, you don't even think about it as a miracle. For example, it's a miracle that you got in a two-ton vehicle driving 40 miles an hour and got here safely. In the hindsight and the, the average of accidents, it's a miracle that you got here. It's a miracle that your plane lands. It's a miracle that you woke up this morning. It's a miracle that you get to live here. It's a miracle that you're breathing right now. I mean, every little thing in life can be calculated as a miracle because if God doesn't move in these areas and it doesn't happen now, there are other things that we come to the Lord for, specifically a recognized need where we understand, God, if you don't do something, There's no hope. These are the miracles that I want to hone in on a little bit because these are the ones that I believe God is still actively doing, but it's not solely on the Lord. Obviously, the Lord can do whatever he wants, but I think there are some steps and some instructions and some things that are on our part. Obviously, we can't make the miracle happen, but we have a role to play in the process of a miracle. We have something to bring to the table, something to bring before the Lord, and if we don't bring it, God may not do it. So let me give you a little bit of clarity on on what I'm talking about. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. I want to read you just a small story in verses 1 through 7. And just to give you context, this story is about one of the greatest prophets of the Bible, a man by the name of Elisha. Now, Elisha is anointed, Elisha is used, Elisha was a student of Elijah, and uh, he, he has this whole process, and he's even got a whole school of prophets, like guys that have studied under him and that are growing, and so Elisha is a very critical person in the Old Testament, very powerful in the Spirit of God and what he was able to do. And so, one day, he gets this knock on the door. Listen in chapter 4, verse 1. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. Let me pause right there to give you some context on what this means. It's critical. Whenever Scripture mentions a widow, it's important for you to understand the context of what it meant to be a widow in this time. This meant almost certainly extreme poverty. Okay? Most this is a, a patriarchal society. Uh, women weren't necessarily allowed to run their own things or do their own things. And so without a husband, without her main source of income, oftentimes the widow really couldn't do much for herself, which may explain why the creditors start knocking out the door. Her husband's dead. Her probably main source of income is no longer here. The bills have piled up and the creditors have come to collect. Now, according to the law at the time, If you could not pay your debt, by law, the creditor has every right to take your family members in as slaves in order to pay off that debt. So this isn't like a threat of some bad guys coming in. They have a legal right to take her sons in as slaves in order to pay off the debt that their father and their mother had incurred. So this adds insult to injury. Not only is she about to lose her sons, 
But as, as a widow, her sons may have been her only hope for financial stability. Because it would have been her sons. We, we don't know their age. We don't know if they were young boys or we don't know if they were grown men. But her sons would have been the ones who would have worked and would have provided for their mother, the widow. So not only is she possibly going to lose her family, but her future and her source of income and her livelihood, everything is about to be ripped out from her, not to mention she just lost her husband. So she's a widow who's going to lose her kids who's going to lose her house, who's going to end up on the street begging and nothing to have. How many know this is a dire situation? So what does she do? She goes to the man of God. And what does he say? What can I do to help you? This is a good reminder. It's not part of my notes. But this is a good reminder. As believers, when we see a need, our response shouldn't be, oh man, that stinks. Good luck. Our response should be, what can I do to help? Even if you're in a situation where you feel like, well, there's nothing I can do. Oh, there's always something you can do. It may not even be tangible, but it can be spiritual. You know, I may not have silver and gold, but I can pray. I can get on my knees and listen, I get it. And in this city, my heart grieves so much when I'm driving down the streets and I see certain situations and my heart breaks and I think to myself, what can I do to fix this? It's such an insurmountable situation. And I try to do what I can, like what we did yesterday. That's a gesture. But I'll tell you this, and I want to encourage you, church. One of the things we do as a church outside of what we did last weekend or this weekend is we gather together on a Wednesday night and we call on the name of the Lord. We pray and we ask the Lord to do what we can and to make a way where we cannot. So this woman comes to Elijah and he says, what can I do to help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elijah said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Insane miracle. I have a friend of mine, I joke with him. I say, every time you're gonna tell me something incredibly radical that I'm not gonna believe, you always say, this is a story for a believing believer. And so this is a story for a believing believer. If you're sitting here going, that's impossible. Well, you've already checked out in today's message. So for everybody else that's still paying attention, this is a story for a believing believer. Because if we're going to talk about miracles, then you have to consider the impossible as possible. If we're going to talk about God and having no boundaries on God, then what is it to God to fill a few jars with oil? Okay, so this is a, a believer's story. This is something that we have to lean in on, but there are some critical aspects to this story because here's what happens. God may do a miracle in your life because of a need that is presented. And if you don't learn to follow some of these steps, you might miss out on that opportunity. So what do you need to bring before the Lord when there's a miracle that needs to take place? Number one, if you're taking notes, well, you need to bring your need. She didn't just sit at home and complain and shake her fist at God and say, this isn't fair. No, she went to the man of God. She went to someone close to the Lord. Now, obviously, uh, things change now that we have Jesus. We don't need a mediator. We can go directly to God. 
But let me tell you something. There's a difference between having a need and bringing a need. We all have needs, right? Come on, raise your hand if you have a need. Everybody else is a liar. We all have needs, okay? Everyone else, you need to stop lying. We all have needs. Everybody's got something that we need. All of us, all of us in this world have needs. But there's a difference between having a need and then bringing your need before God. Because having a need only just makes you complain about things. Well, I don't have this, and I wish I had this house, and I wish I had another job, and I wish my kids were better, and I wish my spouse was better, and I wish, and I wish. And all you have are wishful needs. But when you bring your need before the Lord, Father, fix my husband, fix my wife. And then the Lord speaks, look in the mirror, fix you first. (laughs) You're like, God, no, I'm praying for a miracle. You are the miracle. Let's work on this right now. Right, but, but listen, it's a difference, right? What are you going to do with that need? You have it. Obviously, you have it. Everybody else has heard about it. We know you have a need. But are you bringing it to the only one who can do something about it? Are you bringing your need before the Lord? Listen, I, I might have a medical need. Let's say I blew my ACL out of my knee, and, and there's a need. And I can tell you all about my knee, my knee. I can complain all day long about it. But if I don't bring my need to someone who can address my need, then what's the point? I'm just a complainer. No, no. If I got a torn ACL, then I got to go to a surgeon who knows how to deal with this situation, who can get in there, who can fix my need, address my need, and make sure that I don't have that need anymore. And so whatever need you have, are you just keeping it and holding on to it? Or are you bringing it to the Lord? Again, we all have unmet needs, but often they're not just unmet, they're unspoken. And I think it's pride that keeps us from even admitting we have a need from bringing light to the situation. It's pride that makes us feel like, no, 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 everything's fine. I got this. I know you don't. (laughs) Okay? You, You might be coasting along, but none of us got this. Only God got this everyone else is coming along for the ride and so you got to understand in this situation your need needs to be addressed now the widow had no problem coming to Elijah and expressing her desperation in my mind I like to read the Bible funny sometimes I like I like to picture it in my mind she came to Elijah hey my husband works for you and uh, he dead now so this is your problem how you gonna fix this Elijah that's my mind. That's how I read it, right? My mind, she goes, uh, excuse me, Elijah, remember my husband who was one of the prophets who feared God and did all the stuff you told him to do? Well, he's dead now, and they're coming after me with death. So uh, what you and your God are going to do about this? That's how I picture it. And you know what? Even then, that's not wrong because she's still bringing up the knee. She's not hiding it. There, were, there was no shame behind it. Listen, James chapter 4, verse 2 explains it so clearly. It says, you want what you don't have, So what do you do? You scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. You know, I've I've often said this sometimes, even as, as a pastor, you know, there are times where the enemy might try to creep in and jealousy might creep up over another pastor or another church. And then I remind myself, hey, we're praying to the same God. I don't need to be jealous about his anointing. I need to pursue my own. I need to get in front of God. Well, you know, how come he's got all this? Well, maybe maybe he's 
praying more. Maybe he's studying more. Maybe he's pursuing more. Maybe he's doing what he needs to do and I need to do what I need to do. But we start to look at other people. We're like, well, I don't know why this person's blessed and I don't know why that person got healed. And I, listen, I don't either. But what I do know is I got my own relationship with God to worry about. And I need to bring my need before the Lord. And maybe the reason that I haven't received what I need is because I haven't even asked for it. Now, some may argue, well, why I got to ask for it, right? Doesn't God know? God understands my need. So why doesn't God just address my need? Why do I have to go beg him when he already knows what I need? I'll tell you why. Because of how we are. Because when God addresses a need that you never asked for, you get credit that you never deserved. Isn't that true? When, when God addresses a need that you never prayed for, here's what we do. Man, I'm so lucky. Oh, wow, now luck gets the credit? Man, did you see how hard we worked out? Man, I figured it out. I did it. No, you didn't. God helped you. But because you didn't ask for it, you didn't even recognize that he was the one that helped. But when we pray for something, when we're earnest about something, when we pursue the face of God for something, and then God delivers, praise rises. Something changes in your understanding because you recognize this was my need and you addressed it when I asked you for it. So why does God ask us to pray? Well, one of the many reasons, to ensure that he gets the glory. Well, why does God need the glory? Because when he doesn't get the glory, you fade away further and further from him. Because what happens is you assume, well, I don't need you. I figured out the last stuff. And God's looking at you like, no, you didn't. It is by my grace that you received anything. And you have forgotten about this. You know what God does? Okay, I'll remove my hand even further since you got all this together. And eventually you come crawling back. I'm sorry, Lord, I need you. And God, you've always needed me. But every now and then, God's got to remind you just how much you do. So we got to be able to bring our need before the Lord. And then I love this question. Elijah looks at her and he says, how can I help, right? Bring your need. And then he goes this second question. What do you have? If you're taking notes, the second thing we got to understand is we got to bring what we have. He said, listen, I want to address this need. So what do you have? What do we have to work with? Elijah asked her, what do you have? And listen, the widow's first response is what? Nothing. Immediately, what do you have? Nothing. And that's our first response most of the time. When God's looking at you and he said, hey, what do you have? I got nothing. Right? Even it's like, well, how much money I got? I got no money. No money? Zero money. Like you are completely 100% broke. I got a quarter. That's not nothing. That's not nothing. What do you have? I got, I got, you know, I can draw, I can act, I can move, I can speak, I can whatever. What do you have? What do you have in your house to work with? What do you have that you can bring before the Lord and place in his hands? When we're in desperate moments, it feels like we don't have anything. Except that can't help us. All she had, as she goes on to say, was a flask of oil. Now, most scholars believe that this wasn't like a flask of cooking oil. It would have been a small flask of oil that she would have used for anointing, for prayer and anointing. So this was just a small, almost think of a perfume bottle size flask of olive oil. So in her mind, well, this is nothing. Yes, in your hands, it's nothing. But in the hands of God, it's everything. See, the value of something is often determined by whose hands it's in. A basketball in my hands is not even worth what you paid to get it. A basketball in Steph Curry's hands or Michael Jordan's hands is probably worth a lot of money. 
A paintbrush in my hands won't even get you stick figures. Let's let just tell you the truth. We were planning on Tuesday, everything that was going on in the parking lot, we were drawing it out on the whiteboard, and I went up, and I just did like three or four stick figures, and Pastor Ariel erased my stick figures and drew better figures, and I'm like, what, my figures aren't good enough for you, Pastor Ariel? She's like, no, X's are better than figures. It just makes more sense symbolically. I'm like... I mean, I was slightly offended that my artistic endeavors were not appreciated by my staff. <laughs> but the truth is, a paintbrush in my hands doesn't get you anything. A paintbrush in Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Picasso. You guys impressed with my, you know. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of postmodernism, but you give me some classical Baroque and mwah, I will stare at it all day long. <laughs> I took a half a semester of art in college. Okay, so it, it doesn't end anything. But again, in those artists' hands, those paintings are priceless. A scalpel in my hands will get me cut. A scalpel in a surgeon's hand can save lives. It's the same instrument, but placed in the right hands makes all the difference in the world. So what little you have in your hands stays little. But when you place them in the hands of God, suddenly he does something incredible with it. See, here's the problem. We, in our situation, we love to put our hands on it. And we like to try to figure it out. And what I've come to see is the more our hands are on it, the more God's hands are off it. He's just, hey, all right, you got this. It's like parents from old school. New parents, we don't do this as much. But the old school parents, they were a lot more hands off, right? They saw their kid getting ready to put a penny in the socket. They just kind of watched. <laughs> and then the wife's going to say, no, no, hold on. I want to see where this goes. <laughs> and they put the penny in the socket. It hurt, didn't it? You won't do that again, right? Okay, good. You learned your lesson. <laughs> That's why I twitched every now and then at night, right? But <laughs> it all depends. <laughs> we'll give you my medical records later. It all depends on whose hands it's in. How do I know this? The Bible says it over and over again, but here's the most famous version of it. John chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. Verse 5 through 9. The Bible tells that Jesus is teaching over 5,000 men, not including women and children. And he's been teaching them all day long. And that it got late and his disciples are like, man, listen, it's late. You've been doing this all day long. These people are hungry. We're kind of tired. Why don't you send them off into town? We're in a desert place. There's no food here. Send them away so they can go get food. And I love Jesus' response. No, you feed them. And listen, in John chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, Jesus soon saw, soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Well, in that boy's hands, not good at all. But when you place those fish and loaves in the hands of Jesus, suddenly 5,000 people plus women and children get fed. Oh, and by the way, 12 baskets of leftovers. Why? Because it matters whose hands it's in. Hey, what do you have that you're not willing to place in the hands of God? That you're not willing to trust God? Listen, can I, this isn't a sermon on that, but this is sometimes what I believe. A lot of times we get into financial pinches and God's asking you to give generously or to tithe. And there's that moment where you're like, man, I don't even know if I can pay the next bill. And what God says is, well, do you trust me with this? Do you trust me to be faithful with this? Put your trust in me and watch what I'll do. 
and it's happened in my life multiple times. And it doesn't always happen like, it's not, I don't want to paint the picture like, hey, listen, if you give God 20, he gives you 40. That's how God's math works. No, that's not true. Please don't misconstrue this. But God will never leave you hanging. Not when you put your trust in him. In your hands, it'll never be enough. But when you trust in the Lord with whatever he asks you, Hey, trust me with this situation. Hey, what do you have? Well, well I just, I got my, my physical abilities. I can work. Good. Let me put you to work. Let me, I'm going to have you do this. Or I'm going to make you do that. Or I want you to take this step. Now, here's the problem, right? Oftentimes, we don't want to do it. But when we trust in God and put our faith in God, God multiplies things incredibly. Even those who say, well, I couldn't. I'm just this. Or I'm, we love to come up with all the reasons why God won't do it. Well, in your hands, no. But you know what I just saw this year? I saw our children and our teenagers take what they had and place it in the hands of God and God multiplied it. What do you mean? Listen, this year, our kids are on point between our children and our youth ministry to raise almost $50,000 for missions. $50,000 for missions. Well, how do kids do that? They got what they have. Where my dad knows that? The Daniels, Eric, you here? Wave at me. I didn't know you love public attention. He's just, there he is, Eric. Listen, I'm going to call you out because your girls are menacing. They know if they go to Pastor Joey, whatever's in their hands, I will buy. So I have bought half bag of chips and, and one piece of candy for like 50 bucks. And I'm just like, you're just cute. And I, okay. <laughs> and they know it. They know I'm a sucker. But how were they able to raise so much? They took what was in their hand. I got candy and I got some chips. Would you buy this for me? Our teenagers, it's not like they did a bunch of massive events. No, individually, they just did stuff. Our young adults, they just took what they had. Some maybe did art, some did photography, some did uh, crafts. They just did what they had. They cooked food. They did what they had. They took what they had. And they said, God, I'm going to trust you with it to multiply it. And look what God did. It's important for us when we have something to give it to God and to trust him with it and then to do what he asks us to do with what we've given him. And I would argue that's maybe the harder part. See, it's easy to bring our need if you can get over the hump of pride. And it's easy to recognize what we have if we look hard enough. But to trust God with what we need to do next that's a challenge. So in order to keep this going, you not only need to bring your need and you not only need to uh, bring what you have, but you got to be willing to bring your trust to God. What do I mean by that? Well, trust means assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. Do you trust God when he asks you to do something? So let's go back to the story of Elisha and the widow. She comes to him. She goes, I got a need. He says, what do you have? She goes, I got a flask of oil. Perfect. Here's what I want you to do. Go to all your neighbors and collect jars as many as you can and bring them over to your house and then go inside your house with your two sons, open up that little baby flask and fill every one of those jars to the brim. Now, this is where the mind and the spirit get into a war because she could have very easily gone, whoa, whoa, whoa. If I start knocking on my neighbor's doors, I like that she had to go to her neighbor's. He didn't say, hey, go in your house and find as many jars as you can. He said, go to your neighbor's. So once she's knocking on her door, she goes, hey, neighbor, love you so much. Can I borrow some jars? What's the neighbor going to say? Sure. What's it for? 
well, you know, my sons are about to be taken into slavery and I got this little flask. And I'm going to collect a bunch of jars and fill every jar with oil from this little flask. That's embarrassing. <laughs> That's awkward. People are going to think she's crazy. But people are going to ask questions. And most of the time, I would argue a good amount of the time, the only reason we don't do the thing that God has asked us to do is because we don't think that it's going to work. It doesn't make sense to us. But it doesn't need to make sense. It just needs to make a difference. And so, so why do we oftentimes battle with rationalizing the spiritual? God, if you said it, then I believe it. Once this family starts going around, they were going to get some awkward questions and some awkward thoughts, but it doesn't matter. They needed to be faithful to what God asked them to do. And so a lot of times, if you ask an unbeliever, if you tell an unbeliever, well, listen, I know we can't afford this place, but you know, God has called us to be in this area, and I believe God has set this up, and I believe God is going to make a way. Well, that doesn't make financial sense. I know. But I trust that God's going to come through. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not an excuse to make poor financial decisions. I'm saying if the Lord has told you, and trust in his word. And don't worry about how much it doesn't make sense. Listen, Proverbs chapter 3, one of my favorite verses, verse 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Our trust has to be in the Lord, not in what we see, not in what we think, not in what we perceive. We're suddenly big time experts whenever God tells us to do something. We look and go, well, I don't know, Lord. Have you made the right calculations? And God's looking at you like, what are you, like, you serious? I invented math. Like, why are you coming at me? Like, and, and this is the, the battle that we get into. Well, I know what God's told me to do, but I just don't know if it's going to work. You don't need to know. That's why you have faith. God's not saying, hey, know in the Lord with all your heart. He said, trust in the Lord. If you knew it wasn't faith, it's obvious. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. And I know you, Lord, and I know what you've said, and I know who you are. And so I'm trusting in your word, even though it doesn't make sense, even though I'm not totally comfortable with it, even though I feel like I'm going to mess up or it's not going to work out, I'm going to trust in you nonetheless. And here's what happens. When you begin to put your trust in the Lord, faith begins to rise. But until it does, you need to be willing to bring what faith you have to the table as well. Here's what I love. Scripture tells us in this story, as soon as they ran out of jars, the oil stopped flowing. You know what's really important about this part? It says, as soon as the, uh, the last one was filled, the oil stopped flowing. And then he said, go and sell the jars, pay off your debt, and then live off of the remainder. Which means this. She had collected enough jars to cover her debt and to live off of. What if, when Elijah told her, go and collect jars, what if because she didn't totally believe, she was kind of halfway there, what if she just went to her own house and got one or two jars and just placed them there and said, well, I'm just going to test it first. I'm going to see if it's going to work. And then if it works, then I'll, I'll do what he said. What if, what if she didn't collect any jars and just went home and was like, it's not going to work? No, no. She collected as many jars as she could in faith that God would fill them. I mean, think about how radical of an idea this is. I'm going to collect as many jars as possible, and I'm just going to believe that God's going to fill it. And then God does so much that it covers her debt, 
And on top of that, they have enough to live on. Some of us, the reason we don't receive the fullness of what God is trying to give us is because our faith is too small. We only trust God for so much and so that's all you get. How do I know? Look at 2 Kings. There's another story with Elijah. Elijah's getting ready to meet with the king. <clears throat> and Elijah doesn't like the king, just to bring context to this story. Because the king, he really lacks faith. He's just not really a man of God. But Elijah bound to his duty. He's getting close to his deathbed. And so he decides, I'm going to bless the king because I want to bless the people. And so he calls the king in, and it says in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 15, Elijah said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elijah put his hands on the king's hands, opened the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elijah said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory and the arrow of victory over Aram, Elijah declared. You will, be, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Apec. When he said, uh, then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elijah told them, strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated a ram and completely destroyed it. But now you would defeat it only three times. Why? Lack of faith. This is the man of God. He's already seen Elijah pray for rain to stop, pray for rain to go. Elijah prayed, no rain for three years. Elijah prayed, rain comes back. Like, this is not a guy you fool with. And Elijah tells him, shoot the, the arrow. He shoots the arrow and he gets a prophetic word of victory. And then Elijah says, now strike the ground. If it were me, when Elijah said, take the arrows, I'm taking everything out of the quiver and I'm, I'm going to my neighbor's house, you got arrows? Like I'm striking as many arrows as possible. But he only did it three times. Why? He probably thought that was enough. Hey, listen, don't do enough. Do what God asks you to do. Partial obedience is still disobedience. You've all heard that said. Just because you kind of did it doesn't mean you did it. And in this case, what does God ask you to do? Here's, here's what I laugh sometimes. Not, not seriously, but it, I chuckle in my mind. People often come to one of the pastors for advice and they'll give us this whole scenario. And oftentimes I'll ask this question, what's the last thing God asked you to do? And then I'll follow it up with this. Have you done that? Because if you haven't done the last thing God's asked you to do, why are you asking me for new advice? What am I going to tell you that God hasn't already spoken to you? I mean, my kids try to do that, right? Their mom will tell them to do something. They don't like it. They come to me for something else. And I'll always go, hold on. What did your mom say? Because I'm learning. I'm getting, I'm getting better at being a parent. What did your mom say? Mommy said no. Then it's no. <laughs> like, or, or I'd even do it better. Whatever your mom said. Bobby, can I, what did mommy say? Well, I, yes, whatever mommy said. Why? Because I'm not going to contradict what she's already said. And in the same way, when you come to one of us or your friends or whoever, here's what often we do. We go to other people because we don't like the thing that God said until so we want a second opinion. We want other advice. Well, God told me I need to break up with this person. I don't want to break up with this person. So I'm going to keep asking people until I get the, the actual thing that I want to hear. Right, right. And that's easy to do. Anybody can keep fishing around until they hear what they want to hear. Well, you know, God says I need to sell my house because I can't afford it anymore. And even though the finances say I can't afford it, even though God told me I can't afford it, it's my house. It's always been my house. So I'm going to keep this house and I'm going to keep talking to people until someone says, just have faith and God will bless your house. Well, if God has already told you, that you're living above your means and you need to sell that home and downgrade, 
I know that's hard, but do you trust God or do you trust the market? Do you trust in the voice of the Lord or are you trusting in your own understanding? Do you have faith in God or are you putting your faith in other people? Uh, If you weren't here for our missions convention, my friend Todd Lucas came and spoke at Wednesday Night Prayer, and he reminded me of one of my favorite stories of a man named Charles Finney. Charles Finney was an incredible man of God, uh, anointed, I mean, one of the greatest evangelists of American history. And there's this story of a, a community, a rural community that had invited Charles Finney out for a prayer meeting. There was a drought in the land, and they were desperate for rain. And so they called Charles Finney and said, would you come and pray for us for rain? So Charles Finney shows up, he walks into the church, he sees all the farmers, he looks around the room, and he says, I'm out of here. I cannot be in a room with such faithless people. And I mean, he just walked in, so everyone's like, what do we do? I'm sorry, did we offend you? Like, everyone's trying to figure out, like, what they did to offend Charles Finney, and here's what he said. You invited me here to pray for rain, and not one of you brought an umbrella. I can't sit here with faithless people. Here's the truth. We pray for things that we're not even ready to receive. I'm not even ready to get it. Worship team, if you can help me out. Do you have enough faith to receive what God will have for you? Listen, I believe every one of us have needs in this room. But I do think there's some of us in this room that have some desperate needs. I think there's some of us in this room that need a miracle. So I'm going to ask you to stand for a few minutes. You know, there was people who drove through our parking lot yesterday who received not Pringles or Hostess cakes or some milk. They received a miracle. Something that they were desperate for that only God could provide. And here's the thing. We don't have to measure miracles. Well, God, I'm not really praying for like healing. I'm not praying. I'm just, this is, I'm just praying for this. Okay. If God doesn't intervene, will it happen? Then you need a miracle. And it can be as simple as I just, I need direction for my next step. I need the Lord to speak. Okay. Ask him. And it can be as crazy as I got a prognosis. And I need the Lord to move. When we bring our miracles before the Lord, our needs, I should say, and we put our trust and our faith in Him, and we present what we have, and we say, God, use it. That's when God moves. How do I know? I've seen it again and again and again and again. I don't know if Monica's here? I don't know if Monica's here. Called her wrong. A couple months ago, Monica was at the prayer meeting. They found the mass in her breast. And we brought her before the church and we prayed for her. And they did a series of tests, one after the other. And just this week, she got the report, no cancer. It's a miracle. That's the second breast cancer miracle I heard this week from our church. There's another young lady, same thing. There's miracles happening all around us. Prayers. 
You're a miracle. You're a miracle. Prayers that we've been praying for, that we've been seeking for. It didn't just happen. Someone brought it before the Lord. And here's the crazy part. It may not even have been you. It might have been a loved one who stood in the gap on your behalf and said, God, if you don't move in my loved one's life, I'm afraid I'm going to lose them. Your brother Stanley prayed for you a lot. Right? Emilio prayed for you a ton. Look where you're standing now. Shot four times, still alive. Because your brother and your family prayed for you. Your mother prayed for you. I mean, there's miracles all around. And I think God is still doing miracles today. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your head for just a moment. Close your eyes. Sir, ma'am, if you're in the need of a miracle, in a moment the worship team is going to begin to sing. Whether it's a miracle for you or a miracle for a loved one, you need God to move. As the worship team sings this song of faith, would you just join us at this altar? The prayer team is going to come behind you. They're going to lay hands on you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to believe. We're going to trust. We're going to have faith. And listen, even if it doesn't happen right now in this moment, we're going to believe that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he can do. So come on, if that's you, as the prayer worship team begins to pray, come on, would you just begin to join us at this altar? Come on, worship team, just begin to join us.